0: Title is, He Must Increase and I Must Decrease. Pretty much just wrap it up, but we'll read it anyways. All right, John chapter three, verse 22. After this, Jesus and his disciples went into the Judean countryside and he remained there with them and was baptizing. John also was baptizing at Anon near Salem, because the water was plentiful there and people were coming and being baptized, for John had not yet been put in prison. Now a discussion arose between some of John's disciples and a Jew over purification. And they came to John and said to him, Rabbi, he who is with you across the Jordan, to whom you bore witness, look, he is baptizing and all are going to him. John answered, This joy of mine is now complete. He must increase, but I must decrease. Jesus, we thank you for your living and active and powerful, inerrant, perfect, holy word. You say of your word, it is firmly fixed in the heavens. That God, you breathed. And you spoke through the personalities and circumstances of living people and you gave us your word. And as John said, to hear your voice brings him great joy. And Jesus, right now, we don't wanna hear any other voice but yours. We want this church to be about the voice of the bridegroom who is Jesus. So Lord, would you help me be faithful just to um, just unfold what is here and would you help all of us to receive it, to um, be uh, rid of distractions, to have soil that is able to receive the implanted word? Would you just prepare our hearts and our, the soil right now, Lord? Would you rid us of the enemy, of those rocks, of those thorns, those things that choke out your word, Lord? Would you speak to us? And Jesus, this morning, we just ask that we together would decrease and you would increase. This is all for your great name, Jesus. And it's in your name we pray. Amen. Amen. Well, there's a phenomenon in theater acting uh, that is designed to draw the eyes of the audience to one particular place and person. It is called upstaging. Uh, It's typically used when it's time for the main character to come on the stage and all the other characters back away and often they even turn their back to the audience and it just makes all the eyes go to the one person who's up front who's facing the audience. Now, that is the the good use of upstaging, but very often in theater, uh, if you upstage someone, it means that you're not the main character, you're a supporting character, you're in the background, but you're just acting in such a way that you are drawing attention to yourself in a way that is taking attention away from where it's supposed to be. That's to upstage someone. Now, there is a sin that is as old as time itself. It's a sin that predates even humanity. It is the sin that overtook one of the greatest angels of God. It's the sin that led Lucifer to desire to upstage Yahweh. This is the sin of pride. Now, this is also the sin that Satan used to tempt our first parents in the Garden of Eden. Look what Satan said in Genesis chapter three, verse five. He's telling them to eat the fruit. And he says, for God knows that when you eat of it, your eyes will be opened. Here it is. And you will be like God. The sin of pride has ran in the blood of every human being since the fall of humanity. Uh, There's a 17th century physicist and mathematician and a Catholic theologian named Blaise Pascal. He's a genius and he speaks of pride and he said these words of pride. This is what he said. We are so presumptuous that we should like to be known all over the world, even by people who will only come when we are no more. Such is our vanity that the good opinion of half a dozen people around us gives us pleasure and satisfaction. The Bible does not speak uh, well of pride. Look at these few verses of how God himself speaks of pride. Proverbs sixteen eighteen, pride goes before destruction and a haughty spirit before a fall. Get the prophet Obadiah, the pride of your heart has deceived you. You who live in the clefts of the rock in your lofty dwelling, who say in your heart, who will bring me down to the ground? Look at James 4, 6, but he gives more grace. Therefore it says, God opposes the proud, but gives grace to the humble. Proverbs is saying, take heed, Obadiah is saying, your own pride blinds you. If you don't think you're proud, you are so proud that you are blinded by your pride. And James 4 says, if you are proud, you will be opposed by God himself. Now, one of the deadliest aspects of pride is that we are so in touch with everyone else's pride. Isn't that true? but we are so blinded by our own pride. You guys, I will confess to you that this week as I was studying this text, I will, I'm ashamed to say this. I'm like, oof, that is for that person. Oof, this nug is gonna hurt that person. Oof, this person needs to hear that. I literally lived in that for like two or three days. I'm not even kidding. Um, and it was like Thursday or Friday and I was just listening to this one podcast, completely unrelated and... Um, it was, a, it was a, a past, an older pastor talking about his younger days and his church and the situation going on. And in that moment, it was as if the Holy Spirit said, like the prophet Nathan to David, you are the man. And all of those judgments that I'd accumulated from this week just like fell upon me. And I, I, you guys, I was honestly embarrassed. I was like, I am so proud. I am so blinded by my pride. Now... Uh, I want to say this to you. This sermon is for you. Um, It's not for anyone else. The sermon's for you. Uh, You may be thinking, oh, this is going to be really important for so-and-so. I have seen pride in this church in this way. Let me tell you, this sermon is for you. And if you can't receive it, you need it more than anyone else. This sermon is for you. Now, if there ever was a man who deserved to be proud of himself, it was John the Baptist. Jesus himself says of John, truly I say to you, among those born of women, there has arisen no greater than John the Baptist. Jesus says there is no one greater than John. He's the first true prophet Israel had seen in 400 years. His ministry is a huge success. People were flocking to see him, to hear him, to be baptized by him. And yet in our text, uh, we see this great man, John, at the very end of his greatness, at the very end of his ministry. The time has come for the main character to step on stage and for John to fade into the background. And it is precisely at this moment, the end of his public ministry, where John shows us why he is so great and how he is so great and what true greatness looks like in the kingdom of God. He displays the greatest attribute you can in God's kingdom, humility. And as we study these, these verses, as we walk through them, we're gonna learn three traits of humility together. Uh, but first, we're gonna get a, a quick sense of the context. That's how uh, John the author sets it up in verses 22 to 24. This is a transition moment. This is after the conversation with Nicodemus, after the Passover. And what he says, let's, let's read it together, Verse 22 says this, after this, Jesus and his disciples went into the Judean countryside and he remained there with them and was baptizing. Now I want to point out a few things here. So Jerusalem is in Judea. They kind of leave the public area where there was so many people and they just go get away to the countryside where there's not as many people. And as the ESV says that he remained there with them. Jesus... He's taking his few disciples and he goes to be with them. The NASB says it this way, he was spending time with them. The King James puts it like this, there he tarried with them. Uh, I, I just want us to take a moment to, be, to pause before we get into this lesson on humility and notice what Jesus does With his disciples. This is a lesson that we love in this church and is so essential to our church that before Jesus goes to do any public ministry and before he sends out his disciples to do public ministry, what does he do? He spends time with his disciples. That verb, remained or tarried, uh, it, it connotates like an extended time, like multiple months. It's also beautiful. This little story here is not in Matthew, Mark, or Luke. Uh, The public ministry of Jesus picks up after John was thrown in prison. But this little story is just a few verses that only John fills us in this private time that he had with Jesus. He remained there with his disciples. And what he was doing was baptizing. Now, Uh, If you look at chapter four, verse two, it clarifies Jesus himself didn't baptize, only his disciples. So Jesus gets away with his guys. He's just spending months with them in the wilderness and they're baptizing people. Now, it's significant to point out that of all the things that Jesus and his disciples could be doing, they were baptizing. And they weren't doing it like, you know, miles and miles away They set up camp, as verse 23 says, right next to John. It's like John has this ministry, this special ministry. He's sent by God to prepare people for Jesus. And his unique thing he's introducing is baptism, where he's calling people, repent, you need to be cleansed and washed. Now Jesus shows up and he sets up tent like right down the river and starts baptizing people. Just imagine that, that's the setting. Jesus is like, come on guys, let's go be together, but we're gonna do one thing. We're gonna baptize, right next to John, the Baptist. That's the setting of this sermon. Now, as we read verse 25, uh, we're gonna see the first attribute of humility of a humble person as displayed in Jesus. And the first thing we see is this, a humble person rejects religious jealousy. A humble person rejects religious jealousy. Let's read again verses 25 and 26. Now, a discussion arose between some of John's disciples and a Jew over purification. And they came to John and said to him, Rabbi, he who was with you across the Jordan to whom you bore witness, look, he is baptizing and all are going to him. Do Do you feel that? you feel like what they're doing there some of these loyal disciples of john notice jesus is starting his ministry right down the river doing the same thing john is doing he is baptizing as if someone felt called to plant a church in carpinteria and they just set up right across the street they is like what's happening right here and the faithful followers of john are like john and, and, and notice how they refer to Jesus. Do they even say his name? Look at, look at what they say. They, it's like 12 words. He who was with you across the Jordan to whom you bore witness. John's like, you mean Jesus? Is that who you're referring to? That's, they like don't even want to speak of him. They're so disgusted. And, and they say, look, he's baptizing. And look at the hyperbole in verse 26. All are going to him. Every, the whole world, Jesus is going, or the whole world, John is going to Jesus. Like, what do you see this? It's as if they're trying to stir John up. Like, do something. Do you care? Do you notice? There's this disdain for the person and ministry of Jesus. Now, we are seeing on display that vile old sin religious jealousy you see there's pride is not spoken well of in the bible but there's an even there's a particular strand of pride that is the most deadly and it's religious pride it's pride in worship that is the sin of satan he didn't want he was the worship leader from all we can tell he was the leader of the music but he wanted worship his pride showed up in the context of worship. If you remember the first murder in the Bible as Cain killed his brother, it was in the context of worship. One sacrifice was better than the other. This is the sin that's inflaming the Jewish people here against Jesus. In John chapter 11, look how the Jews speak about Jesus. So the chief priests And the Pharisees gathered the council and said, what are we to do? For this man performs many signs. If we let him go on like this, everyone will believe in him. And the Romans will come and take away both our place and our nation. This is religious jealousy. This is jealousy in the house of God. This is jealousy over ministers of God. This is the worst kind of pride there is. And do you know what happens when we exalt human beings higher than God? When we have a greater jealousy for a particular style or person over Jesus. Jesus. We see this show up in the early church. Remember, the Corinthian church struggled with, I follow Paul. No, I follow Apollos. No, I follow Peter. And then there were the super religious people who were like, well, we follow Jesus. Now, John criticizes even those people because he's like, you're using Jesus in your pride. You're taking pride that you worship Jesus better than those people. We can even be about Jesus in such a way that we look on disdain at every other church. Well, we're the Jesus church. You may be about that preacher. You may be, we're about Jesus. That is religious pride. That is in us. The essence of religious pride is to take pride in how we worship God over others. And yet John the Baptist will have none of this. He doesn't bite. He doesn't give into this jealousy. And in the following verses, he he displays likely the greatest humility ever recorded in the Bible. And he wraps it all up with his famous words, he must increase and I must decrease. And so a humble person rejects this kind of divisive, selective religious jealousy. Now let's look deeper at John's response and we're gonna see the second thing about true humility here. Uh, Let's first read verses 27 and 28. John answered, a person cannot receive even one thing unless it is given him from heaven. You yourselves bear me witness that I said I am not the Christ, but I have been sent before him, And what John is saying is this, a humble person receives the unique work God has for them. A humble person receives the unique work that God has for them. John knew that his ministry was a gift from God. So I didn't earn this. God the father gave me this unique role in his kingdom. And God the Father has given Jesus another work to do. Now, again, John was the last prophet in the old covenant. He had a unique role that no one else had. He got to be the the one who was announcing officially the coming and arrival of the Messiah. And what John does is humbly accepts this role. He has a place. He has unique gifts, a unique personality. He's been placed in history at a unique moment. But he knew that this was a gift from God. This wasn't something he earned or worked for, for himself. Before he was born, he was given this role, this ministry. And and so he says this, that incredible mind-boggling statement in verse 27, a person cannot receive even one thing unless it is given him from heaven. You guys, our gifts and our personalities and our opportunities and our ministries are gifts from God. And our unique talents and abilities and, and, and personalities, they are, they are given to us from God, not to be earned, not to be worked for, not to step on or achieve more than others. They've been given us by God. Uh, look at 1 Corinthians chapter 4, verse 7. For who regards you as superior? What do you have that you did not receive? And if you did receive it, why do you boast as if you had not received it? You guys, even your work ethic and personality is a gift from God. All that we have is a gift from God. And I I wanna notice, I want us to notice an important connection That's here in the text. The disciples of John clearly had this jealousy, maybe even selfish ambition going on here. And what's the fruit of selfish ambition and jealousy? Well, verse 25 says a discussion arose. Now the ESV calls it a discussion. Other translations, the NIV calls it an argument. The NLT calls it a debate. The King James calls it a dispute. The Greek word connotates all of that. It's this aggressive disagreement. Now notice, when there is selfish ambition, what is a result? Conflict, disputes, debates. And here's the point. When we don't humbly receive the ministries and the gifts and the roles God has given us, it will lead to division in our hearts and in the church. Now, again, listen, this sermon's for you. Where's your selfish ambition? How is it bearing fruit in this church? Look what James says in James chapter three. We're gonna read a handful of verses. Who is wise and understanding among you? By his good conduct, let him show his works in the meekness of wisdom. But if you have bitter jealousy and selfish ambition in your hearts, do not boast and be false to the truth. This is not the wisdom that comes from above, but is earthly, unspiritual, demonic. For where jealousy and selfish ambition exist, there will be disorder and every vile practice. But the wisdom from above is first pure, then peaceable, gentle, open to reason, full of mercy and good fruits, impartial and sincere. And a harvest of righteousness is sown in peace by those who make peace. The Bible is crystal clear. If there's drama, it's because of selfish ambition, it's because of jealousy. And how we are to receive the word of God is please, God, where is my selfish ambition? Where is my jealousy? I'm going to read one more quote from a pastor named John Calvin. Uh, I know he's controversial, but he's a pastor and he has something good to say here. So listen, what man of the ordinary rank would venture to desire more than what the Lord has given him? This single thought, if it were duly impressed on the minds of us all, would be abundantly sufficient for restraining ambition. And were ambition corrected and destroyed, the plague of contentions would likewise be removed. Man, if we could receive the unique gifts and opportunities God has given us and joyfully rejoice in the gifts and opportunities he's given others, gosh, the plague of contentions would be removed. And what a good phrase, the plague of contentions. Please, God, please do that in our church. So we see a humble person resists religious jealousy. A humble person gladly receives their unique work in the kingdom of God. And then the third truth is this, a humble person rejoices in Jesus' glory Let's read again verse 29. And John now takes this stuff and he, he applies a metaphor in verse 29. He says this, the one who has the bride is the bridegroom. The friend of the bridegroom who stands and hears him rejoices greatly at the bridegroom's voice. Therefore, this joy of mine is now complete. John says there's a, there's a Bridegroom, or we would just call it a groom. You have the bride, and then you have the friend of the bridegroom, which we would call the best man. And in that culture, the friend of the bridegroom actually had a higher role than our typical best man. It was extreme honor, but it was also a ton of responsibility. He was responsible for arranging all the practical uh, parts of the feast. When it was time for the wedding to happen, it was his role the, the, the friend of the bridegroom to go to the bride and get her and bring her and present her to the groom. It was also his role to then escort them to the bridal chambers to make sure they got there, that there was no drama to happen. And it was such a high honor that it was, it was banned by law under any circumstance for the best man to have one day marry that bride. Even if the husband died, even if, if, he, got, if he divorced her under no circumstances was the friend of the, of the groom ever to marry the bride. It was like a high honor. This is part of that, uh, that background. You remember when Samson had a wife and then he didn't show up and then the best man got the bride and Samson just went and killed everybody. It was like that kind of an issue. It was like a big deal. You don't just hand off the bride to the friend of the bridegroom. And in this metaphor, John identifies himself. He says, I am like the friend of the bridegroom. And what he's doing, he's putting all of this in perspective for his disciples. He's saying, Jesus is the groom. And Jesus has come for his bride. And it is my role to orchestrate this meeting, to present the bride, to bring the bride and the bridegroom together. And now that they are together, it is my role to back off. And and the very fact that everyone is going to Jesus, the very thing that's driving his disciples crazy, John is saying, that is exactly why I'm here. So that everyone would go to Jesus and not to me. Nothing could bring me more joy than to see my best friend receive his bride. Now, consider how outrageous it would be for John to say, do you know what? I want the bride for myself. I know, Jesus, you're here, the groom, but I want, I want a piece of that. I want the bride. Nope, you can't have her. Like, it's literally disgusting. It, it should feel absolutely wrong. Nothing should repulse us more than when any human being says, she's mine. Nope, she belongs to Jesus. That's why he says, he uses the words that are so intense, he must increase. I must decrease. It has to happen. This is for Jesus and his bride alone. And now I want to I speak uh, publicly to myself and to all of our perspectives of how we think about ministry for a moment. You guys, we cannot be more preoccupied with pastors and preachers than with Jesus. The bride should not be preoccupied with the best man. There is one groom and his name is Jesus. That is who we are all about. And when, and when a church becomes preoccupied with the best man, man, that church is beginning to die. Because what nourishes and sustains the love and life of the church is when the church is with her bride. Uh, J.C. Ryle has this incredible quote for us. Let's, let's, look what he says. This is so important, you guys, for us right now. As churches decay and fall away, they think less of Christ and more of their ministers. As churches revive and receive spiritual life, they think less of ministers and more of Christ. To a decaying church, the sun is going down and the stars are appearing. To a reviving church, the stars are waning and the sun is appearing. I just want to ask us, what consumes our thoughts and conversations and attitudes and time right now in this season? And if it's not Jesus, man, that sun is going down. And we'll have some light, we'll have some stars, but, but we're missing out. You guys, this church belongs to Jesus. It has always belonged to Jesus. We gather to hear the voice of Jesus. The vision and the mission has been given to you By Jesus. There is one perfect shepherd, his name is Jesus. And it is the job of the church to long for Jesus, to follow Jesus, to hear the voice and words of Jesus. And it's the job of leaders to lead you to Jesus. So may Jesus increase in this church. And may everything else decrease. And as John puts it, that is where true joy is found. When we hear the voice of the groom and all other things begin to fade away, that is where joy is found in the church. Now, I wanna close with a few uh, practical points of application for us. Um, We have seen incredible truth about humility. We have seen likely the most humble man to have ever lived, Maybe Moses would dispute. No, nah, I'm more humble. I don't know. But, <laughs> but, but, but here's, I want to be practical for a moment. How does one become humble? Like, okay, yeah, that's what humility looks like. But how do we get there? How do we cultivate it? How do we like walk and grow in humility? Um, and and I, want to, I want us to think about it. How did John cultivate humility? How did he get there? Uh, the first of our three practical things is this. Humility comes as we behold God. It couldn't be more practical than that, you guys. Humility is a byproduct more than something to be sought on its own, right? How, it's, how weird is it to try to be humble? Like it's, it's weird. It's, I'm so humble. I'm, I'm humble. I'll be humble, humble. No, humility is a byproduct when you see something bigger and greater and more beautiful than yourself, you're just like, wow, you just, you fall on your knees. You are humbled as you see something better and bigger and more beautiful. Now, you know, the problem is, is we spend most of our time comparing ourselves to each other and we will always be able to find areas that we feel superior to so-and-so. Hey, listen, I'm better than that. You know, I may not have that, but I'm surely better than that. As we spend our time comparing ourselves and beholding one another, Uh, that is how you cultivate pride. But when we compare ourselves to the holy lamb of God who takes away the sins of the world, the one to whom all the angels cry, holy, 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 we begin to see ourselves rightly. As Isaiah saw the Lord exalted, he fell on his knees, he humbled himself. So let us occupy ourselves with Jesus Every single morning and every single evening, and we will grow in humility. In the morning, we wake up and say, Lord, I need you. Show me your glory. Show me your beauty. Show me who you are, Lord. And then as we go to bed, we sleep because we know we're not God. There's a God who is sustaining all things, and we can rest. So let's cultivate humility by looking at God. The second practical way we grow in humility is humility comes as we remember the cross. First of all, there's no greater act of humility than to see God himself taking on flesh and hanging naked publicly on the cross. There's no greater way to spur our own pride than seeing the cost of our pride as God was on a cross We put him there because of our sin. There's no greater way to help us not be proud towards other people when we remember our own offenses against Jesus are far greater than anything anyone could ever do to us. And you guys, there is no greater remedy for our own sense of failure and shame than to see the love of God on the cross when we were at our worst. He came for us and he died for us. If we keep looking and thinking on the cross, we will cultivate humility. And now the third really practical piece is this. I want you to add humility, practicing humility, humbling yourself as like a tool, uh, as the first step to any problem you're facing. I literally mean that. I want you to think about humility as the first step in any problem you are facing. Again, look at James 3 16 through 18. Who is wise and understanding by his good conduct, let him show his works in the meekness of wisdom. The meekness of wisdom. And he goes on to say the wisdom from above is pure, peaceable, gentle, open to reason, full of mercy and good fruits impartial and sincere that is the fruit relationally when we are pursuing humility if if you have relational problems if by chance you're one of those rare people who have relational problems it's likely because of your own pride and the most significant step you can take is to humble yourself where am i wrong Where am I exalting myself in my opinions? Where am I enforcing my rights? I've been wronged. Where can I humble myself? Listen, what we do is we're like, if they only humbled themselves, this would be way better. That's just not what we do. We humble ourselves. Are you trying to discern God's will for a decision or the future? Look what the Bible says Psalm 25, verse 9. He leads the humble in what is right and teaches the humble his way. Man, when we cultivate humility, we're in the right spot to hear from God, be led by God, to have our steps directed. So you're trying to like make things work and you're proud. You're just gonna be resisted by God. But when we humble ourselves, we are in the right posture to be led adequately by God. Are you longing for just more of the presence and blessing, that, that experiential like, oh, it's so good to be with God. Good James 4, 6 says, but he gives more grace. Therefore it says God opposes the proud, but what does he do? He gives grace to the humble. Man, to receive the good favor and blessing of God it requires us to bend our knee and just receive grace. There was a well-known pastor named Andrew Murray. He said this, humility is the only soil in which the graces take root. That's the soil. That's the only soil. The soil that says, I need you, God. I need your grace. I need your mercy. I need your presence. I need your blessing and your favor and your help. So God, help me. So church, would we resist the temptation towards jealousy and a divisive spirit? May we humbly, each of us humbly accept our place in the body of Christ. Maybe for some of you, you haven't been walking in that. Maybe for others, you've been jealous or trying to do something you haven't been. Would we each receive our place in this season that God has given us? Would we find our deepest joy in Jesus alone being glorified in this church. Church, let us daily look at the glory of God and cultivate humility. May we each look at the cross and see both our sin and the love of God for us when we were sinners. And let us pursue humility in all Problems and drama and issues that is, is before us right now. So Jesus, I want to thank you. There is no one like you. There was no one who was as humble as you. And Jesus right now, we want to together, collectively take a posture of humility and say, "Lord, we need you. God, we need you. Have mercy on us. We need you. Lord, we ask that you would come and you would level out the high places and fill in the low places and remove the rocks and make the crooked things straight in our church. And Lord, I just please, Holy Spirit, would you apply your word to each of us individually this morning as we need it. Please, God. I even just pray, Lord, as a, you would help us <laughs> you would help us not pray for so-and-so's pride ever before we acknowledge our own Lord. God, we need you. We want the sun to rise on this church. We want more of Jesus in this church. We want to decrease and we want more of Christ to increase. God, we ask that more people would come to this church as a result of Jesus increasing and us decreasing. We ask for salvation, Lord, and revival and a great move of your spirit as we humble ourselves, as we acknowledge our need for you and our sin and we confess it and we remember the cross where God, you loved us at our worst. And we believe that that is still the power of God for salvation, even for Carpenteria, in the coastlands. So please, Jesus, increase in this church. Increase in the coastlands. God, I ask that you would bless every single faithful church in this city and in the coastlands. God, I ask that you would save people there this morning, this evening, this week. We ask that, Jesus, your capital C church would be blessed. You would strengthen it. Lord, we ask that you would remove selfish ambition and division, that we would not use you or your word or the name of Jesus to divide with other Christians. Would you humble us, Lord? You say, this is the one to whom I look, the one who is humble, lowly, and contrite and trembles at my word. God, we long for your grace and your presence. So Humble us now and exalt Jesus in our midst.